the truth that we're going to find is in the mistakes that we make the fastest. So your job is to find ways to screw up faster and learn faster because that's where your wealth is going to live. The universe is giving you a gift. It might be wrapped up in pain, but the truth is that's where you're going to become wealthy and free. Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast, episode 565. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton. And today I am thrilled to introduce you to Damien Lupo. Damien, I just want to make sure I get this right. Sensei from Black Belt Wealth. And I ask that because I know you've had quite the tremendous and extraordinary entrepreneurial journey. Try saying that 10 times fast. So, and I know I, I delayed our recording. So, Sensei from Black Belt Wealth, is that still the right way to introduce you? I think it's the best way to introduce because it, it sums up who I am because there's such a there, there's a teaching element of being a sensei and there's a deep experiential basis of the teaching. It's not just I didn't read a book about martial arts or business. I actually went out there and bled on the mat and in the streets for for decades. And so it, Black Belt Wealth is all about the experience and not just the academic intelligence, which I think is unfortunately a lot of the teaching that's out there. And so sensei is a great way to describe who I am and what I'm all about. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And I want to dig into what you do and who you are. But based upon what you just said, I need to share with you. And I'm not sure that she'll listen to this. If she does, I'm sorry, Jackie. My sister just rejoined my company. She is an Ivy League graduate. And for the longest time, I was having comparison syndrome to her because she was the Ivy League graduate with the, you know, big paying corporate job. But now she's working with me and she's so excited. And it just... I've never said this before, and I don't know that I'll ever say it again, but it tickles me. It's like, you see, the Cornell uh, degree doesn't necessarily take you where you think it's going to go all the time. And I don't remember now how I got there. I think I just had a brain fart. But <laughs> it's getting out there and doing it, right? Yeah. The thing that's a little scary to me is that I think the, in large part, those Ivy League degrees, not even talking about the debt load that most people take on to get one of those mm -hmm. things, the value there is the network. But the problem is it convinces you to do certain things a certain way. And I think it traps us. So it's it's part of the work that I do about breaking financial shackles and that bondage. These shackles are, are shackles we put on ourselves. And academic intelligence is a shackle that we put on because a lot of times the ego takes over because we have these credentials or what we think is true is not really true, but we don't know what's true because we, we haven't asked a question because we think, oh, I've been trained by the best. And so therefore the questions don't get good. And entrepreneurs that are out there in the trenches oftentimes are asking all the questions because they're like, like us, they don't have a PhD or anything else. So we have to ask questions. It's a matter of survival. Academics can actually trap us and keep us in a box and we don't even realize we're in that box. So you, maybe your sister's going to be a lot happier. She'll certainly be asking a lot more questions because it's not so defined. Like you make it up as an entrepreneur. We make it up all the time. And so we have to ask questions. It's not a, a you know, it's not a specific set of things that we're supposed to do based on whatever our economics class or our marketing class told us at Cornell or Yale or Harvard. Those things, I think, are very, very detrimental to an entrepreneur in many, many cases because we think we know more than we actually do. Oh, my gosh. She's already asking a ton of questions, and I love that she's asking them because she's making me think. But right now I have her managing my Pinterest 
which is working really well for me. It's constant leading people into the funnel. But with what she's doing, she wants to know what's the point. Like, where are we taking this? And it really got me thinking, what is the point? Where are we taking this? And when I finally asked myself that, I was like, oh, I can see it now. Who sings that song? Now I have it in my head. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. But just... Like Bobby McFerrin? Yes. Thank you. I'm so bad with names of musicians, like actors and authors. I have no problem with musicians. Nah. Yeah, but she's got me thinking and she's just the education. I mean, unless there's some hidden department at Cornell that I don't know about. That's where she went, actually. They're not teaching marketing funnels. So I actually gave her an example of Old Navy. You know, you go to their website, you get a pop-up. It gives you a coupon code if you provide your email address. And she's like, oh, I never knew there was a name for that besides annoying pop-up. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that there, I know that there are schools now and, and there's entrepreneurial programs. The question I have is the people that are teaching these, are the students asking how deep the experience is of the teachers? Because I think a lot of times we learn a class and our system is set up so that people learn a class and then they come back and teach the thing that they learned from the class and say, and Robert Kiyosaki and I call these people fake teachers. Fake teachers are people that are teaching based not on experience, but on what they actually memorized. And there is like one lady that I worked with named Ann Wolf was fantastic. She teaches at Arizona State and she worked with Steve Jobs for years right next to him. Like he was her right hand. And that is real experience. So when she came to the party, when we were working on our, our launch, she actually had experience that she was suggesting and teaching from. It wasn't just, well, I read this in a marketing book and I have six degrees and you should listen to me because I have all these credentials. Nobody cares about that. It's not relevant anymore. What's relevant is, do you have results that you can show us? And are you thinking into the future beyond what's done, been done in the past? That's a huge shift in, in who you're learning from. And I think it's important to ask the question before we start learning, who are we learning from and what's their background? Absolutely. And Please, if you're a professor listening to this, I don't mean to be insulting you, but I've heard the expression so many times, if you can't do it, teach it. The sad part is that's true. The yeah. The good part is that we have a lot more people that feel compelled to teach after they've done things and they're saying, okay, this is now important. It's not just about making more money. I can do that. It's, it's like making another million dollars. Been there, done that. I can do it again. I'm going to do it again. If that's all it is, then life is going to be full of regret because there's more to us being here than just making another million bucks. Fortunately, we do have a lot of awesome people that are still teaching. I mean, somebody I was with last weekend was Brendan Bouchard and, and Rachel Hollis. They've made millions and millions and they're out there teaching. It's part of why they're here. They're not here just to make another funnel and another million bucks. And that's what we should be looking for. People that have that heart that are teaching from it and experience. Damien, you're making me jealous. I've had so many friends. A lot of my entrepreneurial acquaintances and friends live on the West Coast. And they're always telling me, Kim, you should move out here so you can be local for all the events. And I'm like, my cost of living here in Ohio is so much less. Like I can just fly. But there's something like this event that you went to oh, to have been local for that. Wow. Well, and, and that's, I think that's one of the core things about setting up your environment. It's the people, it's the places, it's the proximity. I mean, it's like the three P's that sort of just happened right there. But so you've got the, the people that are around you is you've got people that we're comfortable with. And then there's a question, are those people supporting you because you're going to become the average of them? Is the proximity to the things that you want going to make it easy for you to go there? If there's an event this weekend, how easy is it for you to go if the event's in Los Angeles and you're in 
in Ohio. It's really not convenient or, or easy. And then just the general environment, we've got to set ourselves up for success or for creation or whatever it is we're doing. And those can be brutal because a lot of times we have to eviscerate people and places and things that are very comfortable. I mean, I, I can tell you that years past, I had to basically eviscerate my family. And most people cringe, especially Midwesterners. They're like, I can't eviscerate my family. I love my family. I do too from a distance. And we don't talk because it's detrimental. It's the crabs in the box. You've got to look around and say, are these people enhancing me? And are they giving me energy? Or are they sucking energy? We are putting ourselves in bondage. And it's truly our own doing with these shackles, whether we live in a certain place and we don't have access or we're around people. It's the same thing with launching a company. If you set it up correctly, you're literally setting yourself up for success. If you don't set it up correctly, you have no chance of it actually working. You're just going to have an experience. And I don't necessarily think that that's what people want, but it's what they're getting. Oh, my gosh. I could have used to hear that whole message about a decade ago. Actually, a decade and a half ago. Me too. Yeah. I mean, I would have loved to have somebody tell me that whole thing. But you know what? We get the lesson when we're ready for oh, it. Yeah. And and I, I wasn't I needed to go through all this stuff. And I think that that's one of the things people need to hear that we get wealthier by the experiences we have where we learn. We don't get wealthier with a million dollars in the bank. We don't get wealthier because we read a book. We get wealthier because we actually go and do something that can't be taken away. It's the lessons from the experience. So I'm glad nobody said what I just said to you and to everybody that's listening 20 years ago, because mm-hmm. I would have tried to think, oh, I don't need the experience. Not true. I mean, you're going to have your own experience. It doesn't mean you get to do things without failure and mistakes. That's how you get the wealth is by going out there and falling on your face and bleeding and and squirming around uncomfortably. It's part of the process. Absolutely. So this is my third round of entrepreneurship. My first two were when I was married to my first husband, who I shouldn't have married. Let's just put it that way. But he didn't like my second business. My first flopped. My second business he didn't like because it took a lot of time and it wasn't making any money because I was just doing everything wrong. But he ended up, uh, he firewalled me from being able to access my eBay store and my email from home. And anything that he could do to make it more difficult, he would. So I ended up going and getting an office. And that opened up a whole bunch of doors, quite literally, to moving on to a better life, which needed to be done. But what I've learned... And I know there are people out there who will argue this, is that if the closest people in your life are not at all supportive, then they're weeds. And you really have to decide if you're going to stay with the weeds or move on. The question is, are you going to leave before the weed chokes you to death? Because you can't just stay there and think that it's going to be okay. Eventually, it will kill you. Damien, I wound up in the mental hospital. That's that's the path. I mean, it's for all of us. We have if we're not conscious and make a conscious decision, then the universe takes over and that's where it sent you. Absolutely. I've never shared this on the podcast. However, listeners do know that my husband has been struggling with PTSD. So the kids are at home. Sorry, this is a TMI. My husband has just in the last, I think it was last week, he told me, I need you to go into the office and get your work done every day, lock the door and just be able to focus. He's being daddy daycare right now, which drives him crazy. He's like, lock the door, focus. So that at the end of the day, you can feel really good about what you got done. You're not stressed. This is where the TMI comes in. Because when you're not stressed, I have a better chance of getting late at night. (laughs) I'm like, okay, if that's what needs to happen, then I'll go into the office, lock the door and focus so that I'm not stressed so that you can get some at night. But that's that's the type of, I mean, it's supportive both ways. He gets his needs met, I get my needs met. You know, I'm making the money and he's getting what he wants. 
that, that is a huge point on people communicating what they need, both outwardly and inwardly and being honest about it and then owning it. I mean, that was awesome that he shared that and that you got clear on that with him. And I think a lot of times we aren't sharing outwardly and we're not even sharing inwardly because we're not willing to own it because we're hesitating. We're being meek. We're being meager. And we're not willing to say, this is what's true for me. We're not even willing to ask the question, what is true? Start with that question. Everybody listening can do better by asking, what is true right now? What am I struggling with? What is true about that? And what might I do to shift this? We have to start with the truth. Otherwise you're stuck. Again, the shackles. Y'all had shackles. He just broke the shackles open with that, that sharing. That's awesome. Oh, so absolutely true. And that is just something that he recently shared with me is, you know, just how deep those needs are with them. And I don't mean to embarrass my husband people, but like if you're married or in a relationship with a significant other and you aren't expressing needs like that, or even non-sexual needs, emotional needs, physical needs, even what you want for dinner type of needs, I don't like the food that you're cooking. Would you please cook something else? So many of us, and I've been guilty of this, will keep it inside because we don't want to hurt the other one. But in the meantime, like Damien, like you already said, it's just killing us on the inside. And then we wind up down that deep, dark hole of depression and anxiety because we're afraid of voice of having a voice or insulting other people. At least that's where I was. I think this is a huge point that it would be helpful to unpack a little bit more because when we're when we're not sharing these things, we're not sharing the truth with other people, we are, we're just not doing it verbally because how we interact with people is going to be a reflection of our unease or disease that's brewing because we're not being open and we're keeping this toxicity trapped. So it's going to show up. It just may not show up the way you thinking it's going to. The problem is it's going to be a problem. And until you're willing to voice the, the truth and let it out, you can't fix it. It's just stuck and it's going to screw everything up. Absolutely. And I want to share that it doesn't just stop at significant others, clients, mm. employers, coworkers. I had literally the boss from how, like, think uh, the devil wears Prada type of boss when I was working in Greenwich, Connecticut. And I commuted two hours each way with my two-year-old son. He went to daycare in Greenwich. And so it took a lot of work for me to get there. I would work my full eight hours. I was an interior designer. I went to one of the top art schools in the country and I was good at what I did, but she just had a mean way of interacting with all employees. And one day she called me into her office and just started braiding me and I had had enough. And I said to her, look, oh, by the way, I was a contractor. I was an employer or an employee because the company told her she couldn't hire any more employees because she was costing them so much in unemployment. That's said, a sign. Yeah. But I said to her, look, I'm traveling two hours each way on bus, train, and bus to get here to help you do your job better. If you don't want me here, then I will leave. But if you want me here, then stop talking to me like that. And she just, like, her head just sort of snapped back. About a week later, she gave an announcement that she was leaving the company to start her own company. And she offered me a job to go with her because I had actually voiced myself. Interesting. Yeah. When you do, when you step up, the but opportunities open. Yep. I didn't go with her. I didn't. I didn't. Probably good choice. It's just interesting how we think the problem is we can't really share because it's going to become a problem. But the truth is it's blocking the opportunity by us keeping the, the truth to ourselves. Absolutely. Damien, I want to step back a little bit because we haven't really got into a, a good introduction with you. I know this piece and I just want to circle back around to college because I think this is funny. I'm sorry if you don't think it's funny, but you got kicked out of college because you put the campus bookstore out of business. 
Well, I think that's our job to find things that are not serving. As an entrepreneur, you can't help yourself. But I think a lot of times that we look out and we go, how can I make money? And I've always looked out and said, how can I solve a problem? I, sometimes that problem is like when I sold Nintendo games as a kid, I couldn't afford Nintendo games or my parents couldn't. So I went and created a business so I could play games. In in college, the thing that bugged me was that the bookstore had this monopoly and they were basically screwing over the students, charging them a hundred bucks, then buying a book back for 50 and then selling it for 75. And I thought, that doesn't seem to make sense. Let's do better than that. Mostly because I was annoyed. And I think that if we look around, it's not really hard. You just look around. People are annoyed all the time and many times at the same thing. That's the opportunity. So my opportunity was to make everybody happy except the bookstore. And you know what? I didn't care about the bookstore because it was a nameless, faceless corporation that had a monopoly. And I love corporations. I don't like monopolies. I think that they're dangerous. And in this case, it was hurting all of my friends and, and me. So I basically put the bookstore out of business and they said, you have to stop or leave. And I said, I'll, I'll let you know in a couple of days. And I quickly did all my maneuvering. I basically bought and sold books with a smaller margin and I put them out of business and paid for school in a week. And then I left and said, that's not where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be out solving problems, not getting a degree to be in a box at some corporation. Mm, wow. And then what did your journey look like? <laughs> It looked like a very, very drunk spider making a web. So there was no mm. clean, straight line to anything. If you've ever, if you've ever seen, you can look at on on YouTube. There are things where they basically these samples of of spiders that get different drugs, whether it's caffeine or uh, marijuana or cocaine or different things. I don't know what drug I was on as a spider because my path was all over the place. And that's, I think that's the nature of being willing to go out there and try things. You don't have a straight line. And, and it, it was me doing a lot of different businesses. I mean, now I've, I've started and run over 40 businesses and it's, it's because I'm willing to go do things. Sometimes these businesses don't last longer than me starting them and launching. And a week later I go, wow, that was a bad idea. I mean, I've had businesses that lasted less than a week. It was kind of an idea that I, I documented and it was gone. For most people, the idea of, of starting a business is an epic undertaking. And I look at it as an idea that you give birth to, and then maybe you realize a bad idea. But it's the journey has been about doing things faster and not worrying about the failing. In fact, I'll take it a step further. It's not just worrying about it. I actually look forward to the failing because I know that's where I get stronger and wealthier. And it has nothing to do with money. It's actually going through the process of seeing what the world wants and see what it what it embraces versus just saying, hey, I've got a great gizmo or wiz widget and I'm going to make money. That's not it. That's not business. That's not why we're here. You have me so inspired right now. I'm going to have to look up one of these videos. I've been working on my book, Chronic Idea Disorder, for a couple of years. Chronic Idea Disorder is a phrase that I coined a few, back in 2015. It's an entrepreneurial's never-ending supply of of ideas. And some of us just, well, me, <laughs> we start working on an idea and then the next idea comes in and we stop working on the first one even before we saw it through to fruition. And then it becomes a never ending cycle. And I love what you said about not being afraid to fail. But what advice do you have for somebody like me who doesn't see it through to fruition to know if it's going to fail or not? Do you have any like ways to conquer that.
This is the common problem for people that are creative and have ideas. We keep thinking of new ideas and and then we the other one gets dropped and we don't finish. And so tighten deadlines and have accountability around it. And the more public the accountability or the because we'll do things, it's like a trainer. We we will do things, we will show up at a gym and do something because we promise somebody that's relying on us to be there. And then it's a very short term thing. Think about it. You go to the gym and you're supposed to be there on Tuesday. Well, you're not saying, okay, I'm committing to the next year. You're committing to Tuesday with a person. So tightening deadlines around whatever it is that you're going to do. If you're going to do a book, Brian Tracy writes a book in a week. That's how long it takes him. How long does it take you to write a book? A week. But it's because you're not focused that it takes six months or a year. I mean, I've spent years writing books. Did I need to? No, I didn't. I wasn't accountable to a deadline and to an actual production. So if it's a page, I did a a piece with a guy about five years ago where he said, I, I've got a book. And I said, how are you? How are you doing? He said, I'm halfway through. And I said, when do you want to get it out? He goes soon. I said, how about next month? And he said, I don't know how to do that. And I said, daily accountability. And he paid me a big pile of money to talk with him every day for 10 minutes where we talked about what he had done the day before. The pain of him not doing it because he was paying was too big. He got the book done. It was done in 30 days. So it's the tight timeframes for getting things done and then having somebody you're accountable to because we just chase in all, all sorts of things. Shiny objects, we're like a, we're like a drunk squirrel chasing shiny acorns. It, there's never a never-ending supply of them. So we've got to have somebody that's keeping us focused because we're willing to say, I'm going to do this. We don't want to let them down. So that is the thing that anybody that's getting overwhelmed with too many ideas, tighten the timeframes and have somebody you're accountable to. I think that that will get it done. Uh, yeah, I know that wasn't very eloquent, but I'm thinking about how I always give myself like a year instead of telling myself, for example, by the end of this week, I'll have an outline written or tomorrow I will have an outline written, you know? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you one of the experiences I had when when Chris Ashby and I wrote Reinvented Life, we decided we were going to launch the book on 12-12-12, and this was in August of 2012. And we said, okay, so we're going we're gonna to do the, the Apollo space program. We're basically going to say, we're going to the moon, and when are we going to get there? And then we backed in. So we knew the end date of what it was. It was four months. And we said, okay, what do we need? So what happens before we release the book on 12-12? All right, well, we get a final copy from our editor. We, we backwards all the way to August. And we said, okay, so we basically between now and September 26th, we have to have our first draft. And we went, oh my God, how are we going to do that? Well, we tightened our timeframes to the point where we'd have a call and it would be at like 8 a.m. We'd be talking and we'd say, okay, we're going to do, we're going to go off and in an hour, we're going to come back together and we're going to go over what we just wrote. So we're writing about this topic and I mean, we tightened our timeframes down to an hour and then had accountability right after that. So we, it was so wickedly tight. There was no place to go. We couldn't go, well, I'm going to go stare at YouTube or I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. Like in an hour, there was accountability. We got that book done in a month and it was ready to go on 12, 12, 12. So it's, it's sometimes you have to get a little hyper and look at things like Peter Thiel does in zero to one. He talks about taking three year plans and moving them into a six month commitment where you say, all right, I'm going to build a company and sell the company in six months. How do I do that? People go, that's crazy. You can't do that. Well, it gets you to do things a lot faster and you compress years into months because you're not willing to waste a bunch of time, which is what most people are doing. They're wasting time on things that don't matter. They're not moving the needle. So it's just compressing things and then and then giving yourself time to rejuvenate because you can compress, but you'll blow up if you don't recover. And that's a, that's a problem with entrepreneurs. We go so hard and fast. We need to take our 12 months, turn it into 12 weeks, and then give ourselves a week to actually recover from the 12-week sprint. Is a week long enough? 
maybe, but you got to have at least a week. I say every 12 weeks, you got to have a week where you don't do anything. You don't, you don't go create. You literally give yourself time to breathe. Yeah. And it may be too, but it, I think if you're going to compress 12 into 12, you've got to have at least a week where you are not doing anything. Mm, I agree. I would like to see too. I'm going through one of those 12 weeks right now, but it's not on my own stuff. It's for a ton of client, a, a ton of client work. And I'm just pooped. And I'm thinking that as soon as this next, I mean, this, the sprint that we're in right now will be done in two weeks. I actually just want to say I am off the grid for two weeks. Will I be working? Yes, but nobody will know it because I'm exhausted. And that doesn't serve anybody. I mean, ultimately, if you melt down and and things happen, there are physiological things. When I melted down in the 2000s and I ended up in the Mayo Clinic and I you know, I thought I was seeing doctors and I spent all my time on my body because it was falling apart. I thought I was dying. I, I was. It was breaking down because I hadn't taken care of myself. There was no cycle. It was just literally nitrous going through my blood. And that is a big problem. Why? Because I wasn't willing to say no. And the difference between successful and super successful people is that super successful people say no to almost everything. I mean, I I think I heard that from Warren Buffett originally. It is the truth. Brennan Burchard says it all the time. Any smart person that's heard it will repeat it because it's brilliant. It's so smart. And and when, like, I remember, and this is this happened. This has happened recently, where somebody comes in and they're the wrong person. But I don't want to say no because I know that they're willing to trade some dollars for some services. Instead of saying you're not the right person here because you're actually going to drain me and your money is the wrong money for me. People think it's green. It's perfect. It's not. It actually is like it's full of carcinogenic essence. It's very very bad to take the wrong money because it'll actually send you in the wrong direction, like backwards. I was having a call this morning with my accountability partner and we were we were sharing how we both have superhero complex. We're overly and I would love to know your opinion on this, but in our opinion we're over committed to helping people and we often sacrifice our time and money and value to help people. And he he was sharing how he just he basically just got schooled on a new type of matrix for incoming clients. If you know, who to say no to, who to say yes to. And then I was sharing that I seem to get a lot of scarcity mode clients and they're so difficult to work with. That happens because those people aren't ready and they're looking for somebody to give them the answer. The person that's the right person to to allow them to hire you is somebody that's going to ask great questions and they're going to go do it. The wrong person is somebody that is, that is needy and is constantly looking for validation. People do this all the time in, in therapy where they, I, I know a lot of therapists, unfortunately, have people that come in that aren't really wanting to do the work. They just want somebody to tell them the right answers. And that person never really makes a whole lot of progress. The person that you want to work with, I think in general, whether it's a business or coaching or anything, is somebody that is ready. And that's the filter, the people that are ready. Like we do a lot of financial services, setting up retirement accounts, giving people control of their money. Most people aren't ready to have control of their money because they're still not responsible. They're still victim blaming, justifying their life away. And so if they have their money and they lose it or they make a mistake, they're going to blame somebody. It might be me. So why would I want that person in my life? I'm only looking for self-responsible people. I think that's the filter that we need if we want to have a happy, wealthy life, self-responsible people or get out of my office. Amen to that. And I'm just going to plead the fifth on what I was going to say, because I don't know if this person listens to the podcast, but actually, no, I won't. More generally, like if you're working on building your business, you should be building what you're passionate about. And you shouldn't be waiting, just like Damien said, for reassurance that every step that you're taking is right, because the failing is part of the winning. 
There is no. Uh, you, you know never who you learn. are. I hope you're listening. Right. Uh, well, yeah. Okay. So there you go. It, it's who's. I was listening to. Uh, I think it was. It was Robert Kiyosaki. Or I was on a cruise recently with some with Robert and some other people, and the question was, "What have you learned over the years? Um, like, what are the biggest lessons uh, when you?" And Trump said something similar when he was being interviewed years ago, when he was down nine hundred million, like before President Trump, but like real estate Trump, and he's like, "I didn't learn anything when I had a billion. I learned a ton when I lost nine hundred million." And it's the same thing Kiyosaki said. Like, we all we learn when we when we blooper. And I, I don't, we need a new word for blooper or failure. We learn when we don't get the outcome we were expecting. And when we get the outcome we're expecting, nothing happens because there's no charge. It might be a moment of bliss. We have a drink, we do something, we celebrate. But what did you learn? You learn from pain. I don't think we really learn a lot from the, from the wins as much as, I mean, it's like a 10X factor. So how are you going and finding places where you're getting outcomes other than what you planned? That's where the juice is. So we got to find those. If you're not getting those, it means you're leaving potential on the table. And the problem with leaving potential on the table, it's called regret. And regret is hell on earth. It's not the place you want to go visit. I could give you a big hug. What are you doing now in your business? Or maybe the more appropriate question to ask is, how many businesses do you have now? And and could you tell us what one does? Yeah, so the main business is is on transformation. It's there's there's plenty of education out there. There's plenty of tools. Basically, everything that you want to know is on YouTube or Google, and every tool is out there by a hundred companies. It's not about that. It's about transformation. So the focus for the company is transforming people and empowering them. It's about breaking financial shackles. It's about the bondage that people have have that they're in, and we do that through teaching, empowering people with new ideas and tools. Where, like for example, they can take control of their retirement money. It's a very weird concept to think about your retirement money being in your hands. Most people think, oh, wait, I'm supposed to have an advisor. How about taking ownership and being the advisor that advises you? And so that's that's one of the pieces of empowerment. And it's the biggest financial piece for most people. So we start with that one, giving people the tools and a shift in mindset. It's not woo. It's literally just saying, are you going to be responsible or are you going to be a victim? And so the, the teaching is all about shifting people into that financially. It's not hard to go make money. What's hard is to keep the money and to feel like you're actually worth the money and then doing the right things with the money so that it grows and you're not just staring at it or burying it in the backyard. And that's that's the shift. That's the teaching. And that's what we're all about, breaking the shackles and giving people the tools so that they're walking free. You've sort of just given me a slap without even knowing it, because I will tell you that in our family, we have no retirement account, no will, no power of attorney. And I just realized... Oh my gosh, that needs to change like this week. The question is, why don't we do that? We are so buried in being busy and busy, in busy, yeah, busy, busy, and we're we're making money. We're we're trying to do something, and and yet we don't have a foundation. And part of the foundation is knowing that it's handled. I think one of the reasons that my dad died broke was that he really didn't take the time to set a foundation. He just sort of assumed it would all be done. And I remember going through his estate after he passed away and looking at the mess that was there. And I'm just thinking, gosh, here's what most people are doing. Most people don't have their stuff, their crap together. They just kind of ignore it and they think it'll all work out. It doesn't just all work out. That is a bunch of woo-woo nonsense. It doesn't work. You got to put intention into it. You got to actually go and own it. And most people just sort of ignore it. It's like bookkeeping in business. One of the fundamental pieces to have a business that works is to know your numbers. And most people don't 
know their numbers. Why? Because if they knew their numbers, their numbers would scare the crap out of them. They would literally go, oh my God, I'm a train wreck. So if we just ignore them, if we don't have our bookkeeping done, then guess what? We can pretend it's all good. But the, the numbers don't lie. The numbers tell a story. They tell us what we're deciding. They tell us what our beliefs are. They tell us what our habits are. And these are the things that matter because they're going to drive you to the finish line or they're going to drive you off a cliff. But if you don't know the truth, you're going to go off a cliff for sure. There is no way around going off a cliff if you don't know what's really happening. Mm-hmm. So when my husband and I got together in 2010, 2011, my financial goal at that point was just to stay out of the red because I had a horrible problem with, well, my debit card would allow charges to go through. You know, you get on subscription plans, charges go through, even if the money's not there, and then you get the $35 overdraft fee, and then it tries to hit you again, and the next thing you know, you've accumulated $200 in fees because they just kept on trying to tap you. So that was the first milestone, was avoiding the red. And then the next one was just inching up from zero. And I had a coach four years ago, three years ago, who asked me, Kim, what's your zero? I was like, I don't know what you mean. He says, what's the minimum amount of money that you want to see in your account that you're comfortable with? And I said, coach, I just want it to be like higher than zero. He says, oh, come on. I was like, actually, at this point, I just want it to be higher than zero. He says, well, you need to work on raising your zero. And that's the first point. And I know that carried with me from childhood. That was the first point that I realized a zero doesn't have to mean zero. Is my new zero can be five thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand. There is a power in identifying that. I always think that it's it's interesting to watch people when they have a hundred thousand in an account and and they're like, Okay, well, now what? Well now what? You're not gonna be feeling like you need to go get rid of money if it comes in. If you get an extra five or ten thousand, doesn't really matter. If we don't have that much, a lot of times we repel the money. As soon as it comes in, we go, I better better spend it because it's not supposed to be here. But if you already have 100000 bucks, like one of your jobs, if you're listening right now, and you are because you're hearing me say this, is go find a way to get $100,000 in cash in your account. It might take you a couple of years, but go do it. And you go, well, I got all these fees. I'm getting redlined by the bank. I've got all these things. Here, there's something called blank slate. Let's talk about the blank slate principle. This applies to what you just went through, Kim. It's it's the idea that, and I, I got, somebody told me about this with credit cards and I thought it was a brilliant plan. I noticed when I was moving, every time I moved, I would carry all my crap into a new house. And then one day I was moving into a place and I'm walking in, I'm sitting there in a big old open living room. And I said, huh, instead of moving my stuff in here, what do I, what would I go buy if I didn't have a moving truck? And I realized it was about one-tenth of what I had in my truck. And I was like, well, why am I bringing it in? Because it's always been there. And I, I went, nope, not doing that. So I literally put all my stuff in storage. And then I went to the storage unit and said, okay, what do I really want in my house? And what was funny is most of the stuff that I'd moved with was still in the storage unit a year later. And I went to the U, I went to U-Haul, rented a truck, and loaded it up and went to the, the Goodwill. And so it's it, the blank slate, it's easier for us to add on than to cut. Cutting is really, really painful, and we tend to not do it because of momentum. So in terms of finance, back to the credit card, same thing, blank slate. When you have these recurring subscriptions and you're getting hammered and you're like, my life's out of control, here's a really easy strategy. Go cancel your credit card. Get a new credit card number. 
guess what? All sorts of emails are going to show up over the next 30 days and they're going to say, your credit card didn't work. Well, now you have to consciously decide to go buy the thing again. You're less likely to do that than you are to cut the thing out if it's on auto charge. Every one of those subscriptions has to come to you on your plate, in your, on your screen, and you have to decide now, do you want it? And many of them, you're going to say, no, I don't, even, I don't even know what that is. I've been paying for that thing for three years, but I don't even know what it's doing. Probably nothing. And so this is a way for you to get control with one simple call. Cancel your card and get a new a new card number. It'll literally change everything. And you'll be, you, you'll find thousands of dollars. The average person will find thousands of dollars that was just vaporizing on crap they weren't even using. They don't even know about. So that's a strategy to go blank slate I versus that. hacking. I'm actually it's, going through that right now. But it wasn't because I purposely canceled my card. It was because my husband lost my card. Perfect. So go lose your card. Everybody listening, if you want to do this, just go throw your card in the middle of an intersection or leave it at Starbucks. Yeah. In, a, in about an hour, you're going to get a fraud alert. And then you can say, oh, lost my card. Yep. And so you literally can do that. So, you know, seriously, go leave your credit card on a, on a table, let somebody go steal it. And then this is probably a really bad idea, but I like it anyway. And I think it's a really powerful thing for you to go do. If you want to get control of your money, instead of just being a victim of it, go, go do something about it. Well, I realized that I had like a Amazon Kindle for kids or something subscription. And my kids, my kids Kindles, like their Kindle fire for kids or whatever, the batteries haven't charged in six months. And I've been paying this recurring monthly fee that I didn't even realize about because I'm that bad about looking at my bank balance on that card. But as soon as the card was canceled so that the new one could come, yep, exactly what you said. There's the email notification. Your charge couldn't go through. Ooh. You'll know. You'll. I mean, you, you think about your business. What will happen is you'll cancel it and you're like, okay, well, you know what? I really, really need my website to be up or I really, really need my auto insurance. And so the, certain things will come to mind because they're like survival. You have to have them. So you'll go in and you'll add your new card for those things that you remember. The rest of them probably don't matter. The few that do matter, you will get those emails. It's unbelievable how big of a shift this makes and what kind of control because you're being responsible it turns into. So Try it. See what happens. You might just have a whole pile of cash. Your 100000 may be not so far away. I love how you were saying that people who hit 100000 sometimes you know, feel like, okay, this money came in. Maybe we just go spend it because it's not supposed to be there. That was the pattern that my husband and I got into. We kept on getting large sums of money, and we would go spend the money on stupid stuff. He bought an arcade machine that we so did not need. And just in the past few weeks... The business has been really good and I keep on eyeing things that I would really, that I had been thinking about for a while and it's really amazing how now that I'm looking at them and now that I have the money, I'm like, I really don't want that. I like this raising balance. Where can I take it to next? So looking beyond the 100,000, maybe the next, go for 250. Having that number where you stop repelling money partly helps you to appreciate and become that that level and it's i think harvecker i forget who exactly said it but there's like a thermostat your wealth thermostat and if you believe that you're only worthy of having 10 or twenty thousand, like that's your thermostat then anything beyond that you're going to go buy some you're going to buy an arcade machine you're going to buy something the strategy i like around getting past this where you actually are spending but you're building at the same time is buying physical gold because it takes the money out of your account, it gives you something you can touch and hold, and you're actually keeping your physical wealth in your hands. And it's it's still money. It's actually more real money than the, than the dollars and yen or euro or whatever. But the truth is, it gets you out of this place of saying, ah, I need to spend the money on something that just basically falls off the value chart. 
because gold is going to maintain its value. And all of a sudden, you, you're like, wow, I've got a pile of gold. I feel like a good pirate. So you're like literally a, talking about real gold. Real gold, real gold bullion, American eagles, maples. Like I've been doing that for years and years and years and years. And it's it allows me to spend money because we get a dopamine hit when we spend. The problem is you buy an arcade machine, you buy most things. Unless you're like loco in the head and you go, oh, all my collectibles make more money because they increase in value. Most of them are not. What we do is we spend money to feel excited. It's why people impulse shop. Mm -hmm. It's why people go and they walk around malls aimlessly and they have a closet full of clothes. It's like that's what we do. Gold is great because you get the dopamine hit and then you still have the gold and the gold's actually going to be worth more down the road. It's awesome. I've seen people getting those dopamine hits off of buying online courses. They buy it. They might look at module one and then the rest of it just sits there. I've had clients who have spent quarter million dollars on courses. On their credit cards. So now they're accruing all the interest because they're not they're not learning what they've bought and their business isn't going any further. Can you address that for a moment actually? It's part of that is digital clutter. When we're buying stuff, we're buying education. My my dad was great at this. He he had thousands and thousands of books and he thought having the books made him smarter, it made him more powerful. It was knowledge is power. That is nonsense. Knowledge isn't power, applied knowledge isn't power. It's about learning from the knowledge that you're implementing. And people think that they're doing better if they have more of that around them. It's awesome for all the people selling courses, but what does it do to you? It just drains your resources. And it's, it's a trick you're playing on yourself. One of the things I've seen people do is to say, okay, I'm literally not going to buy another course until I do something with this course. And then the next step in that is having somebody accountable that where somebody looks at your credit card statements. I mean, the work I've done with people is funny. They say, well, I want to make more money or I want to grow my wealth. And I say, great. First thing we're going to do is look at your credit cards and your bank statements and seeing what you're doing to yourself because you're, you're your biggest problem. What are all these charges? Oh, those are my courses. Have you looked at them? No. Okay. Well, you know what? You don't get to buy another one. You're going to pay me a lot of money to tell you no. And that is what people need. They need somebody that they have to go and share their stuff because nobody wants to come back to a mentor a month after they start working where they're paying thousands of dollars a month to somebody and say, yeah, I did this. You're not going to do it. You're like, I'm not buying that course because I've got to go show up and I'm paying this person to hold me accountable. So I'm just not going to do it. We have to break the cycle where we're going to do what we should do, which is actually use the course. So I think if somebody's doing that, they're spending a quarter million and I've done it. I've spent over a million dollars on courses and mentors. Most of those I went through and there's a reason I made $20 million because I actually implemented and learned and fell on my face. You're not going to learn anything. You're not going to grow if you actually don't use them. So how do you use them? Have somebody holding you accountable to it. Just because what I do is funnels and in business and marketing automation, I do want to ask, how much of the doing do you think also needs to put be put in in responsibility of the seller? Do you want me to tell you why I'm asking? Yeah, dig into that because I think, I think that's good. I think that's we we I touched, somebody spoke about that at this this Kajabi event I was at recently, and they were talking about how, as a seller of these products, they wanted to see transformation. They didn't want to just see education. They didn't want to just see somebody with a digital pile of of whatever. They wanted them to go through, and so. It was part, you can tell, you're asking a great question as somebody that cares about the outcomes, not just about selling more stuff and building a funnel that just produces. You want actually people to do something with it. It's a really important question. Absolutely. Because, and I have to say, I have not personally used Kajabi. All right. I've had clients who have used a number of other programs who will remain nameless. I am a big fan, and I'm just going to put it out there, of Access Ally Pro and Progress Ally Pro. I think it's Natalie... Lucier, 
her company offers them, and they've gamified the whole system. And they will sort of nudge the students if they don't see them enter and move on to the next level. I'm getting ready to launch two courses in the next year, but after speaking to you today, I might really bump those. Actually, I'm going to commit to bumping those up quite a bit, and I'm gamifying the whole process. They'll get badges and earn accomplishments, maybe even calls with me by taking the steps that are in the course, because I don't want to help people bankrupt themselves by them signing up for my courses and then not seeing results from them. That I think you're on the right track. And we, we should be finding things that gamify things because we naturally want to win. We don't go play a game. It doesn't matter men, women, it doesn't make any difference. We all want to win. Like nobody says, I want to lose. I'm playing this game to lose. And so by gamifying, it's such a service to people because it will drive natural tendencies that we all have to want to get to that badge, get to get to that win. And if you don't have that and it's an option, I think you're really, it's a disservice to the student because it, it is going to support them in actually accomplishing what they came and are paying for. Yeah. And I do have to go back to what you said. I mean, it is self-serving for me too. I want the testimonials. I want the screenshots. I want to be able to, you know, take pictures of the messages that I received. Oh my gosh, Kim, thank you so much for what you taught. I put it into action and look what happened. I have clients who have put out courses and one out of 150 people actually went past like 5% of the content. There's a problem there because how are you going to sell more in the future if you can't even get one or two people to go through out of 150. You got to find a bridge to, through the work. And I, the, the reality is you're not going to get anything in your life that matters unless you're doing the work. Nothing happens. It's, it's a lottery ticket mentality where we go, oh, everything would be better if I won the lottery. Well, right. That's So basically your wealth is going to be created passively. That's like saying I'm going to have the most amazing love affair with the best sex and it's going to be passive. Like I'm not going to participate, but it's going to be awesome because I've got a hot spouse or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. give me a break. You've got to be engaged. It's work. It's it's a process. So if you're not willing to do the work for whatever that matters, take it off your to-do list. Take it off your goal board or whatever. It's not going to serve you to have something you're not willing to engage with ever. You have lit a giant fire under my butt today. Oh my gosh, I sounded so Ohio. I'm a New Yorker, Damien. That did not sound New Yorker. Hot fire <laughs> under my butt. I think I've been in Ohio for too long. Black belt wealth, I feel like you just gave us a whole bunch of wealth in this 45-minute conversation. I want to know where listeners can find you online, connect, and get to know more. Go to DamienLupa.com. There's a video there. You're going to you're going to understand the the freedom the wealth freedom formula, and and you can get you can actually grab templates and things that are available if they're available right on the site. But it's going to give you a start. It's really the question is the question that matters. Meaning you you've got to have somebody ask you the right question, and that's what this is all about. That's what the site's about. That's what the books are. Reinvented Life was about a bunch of questions. And it's, it's because I believe I don't know anything about you, but I believe that you do. And if I help you ask the right questions, you're going to find those answers. So this is going to start you down that, that rabbit hole. If you're ready, if you're not, you're going to run away. But I think for anybody that's still listening right now, you're ready. Go get the questions and it'll help you find the truth for your own self. Absolutely. So DamianLupo.com listeners, if you are trying not to burn dinner, Damien, I've accidentally said if you're trying not to cook dinner, which would be more like me. But if you're trying not to cook dinner, trying not to fall off the elliptical, just remember thekimsutton.com forward slash PP565, where you will find the show notes and all the links and everything that we've talked about. 
Damien, thank you so much again. Completely enlightening. Again, giant fire under my butt, and I can't wait to see what the next six months in my business looks like because I'm stepping up my A game. I love it. I love the tightening of, of things. I love what the consciousness around it, and, and that is the difference. It's literally holding ourselves accountable to something that we can get our arms around. I have to tell you, I'm going to a track meet tonight. I'm outlining my course in between races. There that was go. a goal for the end of the week, yeah. Damien, do you have a parting piece of advice or a golden nugget that you can offer to listeners? The truth that we're going to find is in the mistakes that we make the fastest. So your job is to find ways to screw up faster and learn faster because that's where your wealth is going to live. The universe is giving you a gift. It might be wrapped up in pain, but the truth is that's where you're going to become wealthy and free. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I'm supporting six to seven figure business coaches with their marketing automation and entrepreneurs like you through my coaching and mastermind programs. I want to invite you to visit thekimsutton.com to learn how I can help you take your business to the next level.